Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It's brought to you this week by Squarespace and Eero. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Jason Snell. Hello, Stephen. We're back for more space stuff. I love it. It's great. A bunch of space stuff. It's been, oh. I feel like we've had a very busy fall on this show. Like just lots of stuff going on. There's a lot happening. Um, it, it just this is that thing. It goes to show that that doing a, a podcast about space and related subjects. There was that concern I think we had at one point, which is like, can we really do that even every other week? And the answer is, oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we can. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. a lot. There's a whole lot. <laughs> uh, and we're going to start with my friend and yours, Elon Musk. <laughs> yes. Because that's what we do uh, sometimes when Elon Musk says crazy things and he's been saying crazy things. So, yeah. Oh, so I, this is a good time to mention we got an email from somebody who's a listener who said, <clears throat> yes, sometimes Elon Musk says crazy things, but. You know, you sh- you guys should you guys are being too mean to him. He he has done some amazing stuff, and I think this is funny because I am always worried. We've gotten way more feedback that we spend too much time talking about SpaceX, yeah, than not enough, or that we're not giving them enough credit. I feel like we give them lots of credit, and I worry that we give them too much credit and talk about them too much. Um, but we are critical, and I certainly am critical of Elon's bold predictions and statements because you know, my feeling is not that he hasn't that he's a fraud or something because he's not um he's done some amazing things already with spacex that we've talked about at length about re you know uh, launching first stages and landing them again and launching them again and there's more news on that front this time but um you know that is mixed in with the fact that i i i wish he would he would rein it in a little bit because what you end up with is a story like the story we're about to talk about where they are doing some amazing things, but it's all kind of like mixed in with the cloud of weird stuff that Elon says that nobody knows whether he's actually serious or not, which is, I think, unfortunate. He can't. He obviously can't help himself, uh, but I, th- I think it's too bad because as brilliant as he is, I think he maybe would, I, I think maybe it would benefit him a little bit if he just, you know, like I said before, promised a little bit less and then delivered rather than promising too much revising his deadlines pushing everything back and then in many cases still delivering but just later than he said up front so anyway i appreciate the feedback but i feel like we're pretty fair to elon musk and we talk about him a lot yeah yeah i I agree the falcon heavy launch has been on the horizon for a while now and as as a little reminder the falcon heavy is spacex uh, next launch vehicle. It's it's more or less three Falcon nines just bungee corded together. I think that's all it takes. <laughs> it's yeah. I think it's a bungee cord. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. That's all this is their all heavy. Takes. This is their heavy lift vehicle. I mean, that's why it's called heavy, but Falcon heavy. But it's their heavy lift vehicle. So it's it's going to be able to carry much heavier things into orbit than the current Falcon nine can. Yes, and go beyond low Earth orbit. So this this vehicle is critical to their lunar and Mars programs and you know this is not the bfr which is further down the road this is sort of the intermediate step and uh spacex has been saying it would launch this year and now it looks like january uh musk was a little vague on that because he tweeted i think on the first or the second of december and he said it was going to be next month so i read that as january uh but then his next tweet and i'm just going to read it because I, i you it has to be done justice Payload will be my midnight cherry Tesla Roadster playing Space Oddity. 
destination is Mars orbit. We'll be in deep space for a billion years or so if it doesn't blow up on ascent. <laughs> so, you know, in the catalog of of statements Elon Musk has made, this is one of the this is one of the most realistic, right? Like not the craziest. If they're testing Falcon Heavy. And it's going to have to, you know, and they want to test it with a payload and blast it somewhere and they have no takers. Then could he put a a, a Tesla Roadster in it with a Space Oddity playing? And could they blast that off for Mars orbit uh, yes, just, as it, just as a demo? <laughs> they totally could do that. Now, I'm surprised that they wouldn't, even for a test flight, that they wouldn't find somebody who would take uh, be a taker to literally like build something and put it on board and put it out in space. But maybe it's just uh, too late in the game for something like that. You would think that somebody would be like, we could put something together to go into Mars orbit. But um, that may not be the point. That may be that they, they, uh, they don't want a client or they don't have any deployment capability or I don't even know what. But it, it doesn't seem unreasonable that he would do a stunt like this because he does like the PR and they are, you know, building uh, uh, this big heavy lift vehicle and it's experimental. So maybe nobody wants to be on it. Yeah, I can understand that from the customer perspective. Uh, this The waters have been muddied further. Reporters from like Ars Technica and The Verge and other places have reached out to Musk directly or have heard from Musk directly. And he yeah. is contradicting himself all over the place, saying that it was a joke telling other people that it was serious. Lauren Gresh followed up with him and said, seriously, basically? And he said, yes, I'm serious. And then later he said, oh, I'm just kidding. So it's like, what's the deal, dude? What's going on here? Like, are you serious or not? Nobody knows. I guess he likes it this way. I, I This is what frustrates me about him in, is, is stuff like this. Like, come on, man. I mean, I guess, is he having fun? Is that what he's doing? I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, uh, I for one would think it would be a pretty hilarious payload, uh, but <laughs> I I think I wrote in my blog post. I I want to believe, but yes, he may just be screwing with people. Yeah, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Uh, there is more SpaceX news though. Um, they are upping their recycling game. Or sorry, pre-owned, previously owned, <laughs> previously flown <laughs> uh, rockets. They are going to send a Falcon Nine to the ISS um, they're going to or you know cargo to the ISS on the back of a Falcon 9 on the top of a Falcon 9 um, and the Falcon 9 itself has been to space and back so it's a uh, flight proven is it, the word it, you're looking it's for a, it's a pre previously owned yes flight proven <laughs> launch vehicle and so in this case there uh, this is the first uh, i guess NASA cargo launch that's been through through a reused vehicle so it's just another step along the way of their plan to uh, save a lot of money on space access by reusing their launch vehicles yeah and i mean having nasa sign on i think shows that these rockets are at a a level where you know nasa deems them safe enough and like you said it's a huge step because nasa has a large percentage of the company's, you know, launch schedule. And yeah. to, to have those pre-flown rockets available to them, uh, again, brings the price down, which is good for all of us taxpayers uh, and further SpaceX agenda of eventually, you know, just flying reused Falcon 9s. Right. And they um, 
they have, uh, you know, this potentially opens the door for military applications, too, once they, uh, you know, the, SpaceX is also doing military launches. Um, so they, you know, this is another option for the military, too, to do this. So it's it's an interesting uh, wrinkle and continues the business plan. Speaking of things that Elon Musk has said and delivered on, right, reusable rockets is definitely in the he's delivered column. D- timing, you know, timing varies. Everything's a little bit further behind. There's no commercial crew happening yet, but uh, they are they are advancing and you can see it like this is another step forward for them. So, so let's talk about another rocket company. Uh, there is a group named Rocket Lab they are, uh, as we record this, just a few days away, hopefully, from the the second launch of their Electron uh, rocket. And Rocket Lab, I've seen the headlines, but haven't really dug into them yet. So I thought we could talk a little bit about about the group. Hmm. Uh, new, small rocket company, very similar to SpaceX in that they are designing cheaper, reusable rockets. They're backed by Lockheed Martin and some venture capitalists. But what's interesting about the way they're doing it is that they are they are using new construction techniques and new materials not found at scale in other vehicles. So lots of carbon fiber, uh, their motor, which they designed and built, all the primary components of that motor motor are 3D printed, which just blows my mind. <laughs> uh, and so they are using some of these new manufacturing. You see this, these manufacturing techniques showing up in high-end cars now and things like that, but Rocket Lab is trying to bring this technology uh, into the space industry in a way that is uh, that is new and, and I think pretty exciting to see a company trying some some new things. You know, the Electron is not necessarily a, a large launch vehicle, um, but they are with this test flight going to be deploying three uh, CubeSats for a couple different customers, looking at weather and satellite photography and stuff. Um, and that uh, they have a a launch site in New Zealand. So Rocket Lab's first launch was notable because it was the first private uh, rocket launch from a like completely private uh, launch facility. Right. And so it's it's a little bit different than what others have done, uh, but definitely making a run at, at their technology and, and ramping things up. And that first uh, that's the first orbital launch site in uh, New Zealand as well, which is not very cool. We don't we don't hear about rockets launching from New mm-hmm. Zealand, but there it is. Yeah. That's fun. That that's fun and different, and that and it shows that there are lots of different companies that are that are getting into the into the space game now. And and this is for all of our talk about things like uh, Mercury and Gemini. Um, it's interesting to see that fifty plus years later, what we have is that the, you know that technology is well understood enough, and access to space is important and valuable enough that a lot of these different companies are trying trying stuff out. Now, this is an American company, right? But it's launching from New Zealand. Yes. All right. Yeah, they're American, and they had uh, they had issue. Um, so they had their maiden flight in May of this year of 2017. They had a flight in August, I believe, that had some issues. No, I guess the May flight had some issues. Um, but you know, it's new. It's early days for them. But uh, hopefully, this second launch is successful. They get those CubeSats deployed and and prove that their technology can be uh, reli- uh, reliable. Third up. On our pre-flight checklist is is, boy, it's it, it's it's not bad news as much as it is sort of like taking bad news and then doing some math to extrapolate extrapolate out what's going to happen. And it's a story that we'll link to on the Planetary Society's website from Jason Davis called Clipper Slipper. 
It's nice. Uh, high five for that headline. It's, it's catchy. Um, and it is about the Europa Clipper mission, which we've talked about before, which Congress has been pushing NASA on for a while. The spacecraft is uh, looks like it's on track to launch uh, maybe as early as 2022. There are different launch windows for Jupiter, of course, as the Earth kind of goes around the sun and we get in perfect alignment for Jupiter and then we're out of alignment and then we get back in alignment. Um, but here's the thing. The Europa Clipper is planned to be you launched on the space launch system. The And the plan was that the SLS would launch Europa Clipper direct to Jupiter, which would mean it would get there pretty fast. The problem is SLS keeps getting delayed, as we've said. And there are these questions about, like, should they... Right now, they're kind of hedging on whether it has to go in the SLS or whether they could launch it with something else uh, because they don't know. The last thing you want to do is build this probe to only be able to be lifted by the SLS and then have the SLS be so late or canceled that they can't launch the probe, right? That's that's not going to work. The problem is if you don't use a heavy launch vehicle like the SLS, you can't launch direct to Jupiter. And then you have to do what we've talked about for a whole lot of other space probes over the years, which is you have to take the long, slow way around. You have to slingshot around Mm -hmm. Venus and then come back to Earth and then get slingshotted on to Jupiter. And that's how you build up the speed to get to Jupiter. It takes a lot longer. And they have to change the build on the probe because they have to do temperature shielding. Because when you're around Venus, things are way hotter than right. they are if you're just going straight from Earth out to Jupiter. Um, and so they're still hedging. I believe the, the report that, uh, that uh, Jason Davis made says they're currently kind of planning to have the Venus requirements in mind just in case they need to do that. Um, there's another complication here, too, which is uh, that takes so long that if you went in 2022, if if the SLS uh, launch for Europa Clipper got pushed back to 24 or 26, it would actually still be faster to launch on SLS. So they get in this little no man's land where you could commit to not using SLS and launch, but it's going to take years to get to Jupiter. Um and so you're like, well, or if we wait two years, we could still be there faster. So you, you could launch in 2022-ish, let's say, just making that up, but you know, in that, in that time frame. And you'd be like, yay, we launched, but it, it's not going to get to the outer solar system until like 2028. Whereas if you wait, you might be able to launch in 2024 and get there in 2026 so, or 2025. So you've got this really, it, it's the math of like, do we want to wait? for the fast ride or do we want to commit to the slow ride if you ever took a bus like an express bus versus the regular bus or a train there's an express train and a non-express train you've had this dilemma which is well i could get on now and then i'm on the train i'm on the bus but it's the slow one do i really want to do that so it's a it's a tough situation because as we've uh, detailed before you know sls is slow and they have a uh, and Jason Davis goes into it there is going to be after they do the first SLS launch you know we, we've been talking about how like yay they'll finally do it and then they're off the ground but the way that they've designed the SLS program after they launch EM1 which is the first SLS mission 
Um, they're using they're using a Delta IV upper stage rocket for that one. That's not the final upper stage. So when they launch it and the clock starts, then they have to redesigned the entire launch pad for the new upper stage, which they estimate will take 33 months. So even if they get EM-1 off the ground, and even if they wanted to have Europa Clipper go out with the first, that that second flight, they would have to wait, wait 33 months. And they probably have to wait a lot longer than that. There have been some debates about building a, a, uh, a temporary launcher, um, but it's it's a uh, like a mobile launcher uh, that's that's temporary so that they could get built on that. They don't know. It's a mess. It's a mess. So um, just to go through the launch windows because I think it's interesting. Um, they got the Clipper team's launch windows. They could launch in June 22 and then get there in uh, in late 24 or early 25. They could launch in July 23 and get there in. Uh, January or April of 26. They could launch uh, August 24 and get there March or August 27. Uh, and they could launch September or October 25 and get there in June or December 28. Um, so 2022 is not going to happen. 2023 is the earliest, but they, they want to do the man, uh, sorry, the crewed mission there. Um, and and then you start to say, well, geez, if we don't launch until 24 or 25, should we not just launch earlier and go the long way around? And that's where they are right now. So it's a, it's a really difficult thing. Um, compounding it, uh, as, as Jason Davis points out, if the Clipper says, forget it, I'm out to the SLS, that's actually politically really bad for the SLS, because the SLS is proving its worth, and one of the ways it's trying to do that is saying we've got you know big launches we're going to do like the Europa Clipper. So if they get abandoned by the Europa Clipper, it could um, aid in the death of the SLS as a project. Um, so there's it's a mess, it's a mess. But it's fascinating to see how they all kind of integrate together, where you've got orbital physics and politics, all and technological advancement and the engineering of the pads and all that all come together to create the situation. I, the further we get into this, the less optimistic I, I get. I, I can't help about, it about SLS. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I, I keep thinking not to go back to Elon Musk, but I keep thinking that you know all of the heavy and then uh, the BFR uh, talk that he has is, you know, I think it's smart because I think I think Elon Musk is kind of positioning himself as the solution to the problem of sls to a certain degree uh that like and and the, the thing is he hasn't built it yet either right I mean, nobody has a big rocket but sls which came out of constellation right so it's already been remixed mm -hmm. a bunch of times and should yeah. already have been done and then the obama administration pu pulled that one down because i think that was a bush administration thing and then obama administration said no no we're not going to do constellation we're going to do sls and now sls has a lot of critics too so what you know for all the people who complain about uh, the United States' inability to send people on its own rockets into space, which is true, I feel like that's 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 clearly going to be solved. <laughs> it's this other one. The SLS is the one that, that worries me too. Like, is it gonna is it gonna get there? How long? How late is it gonna be at this point? The the thirty three month uh teardown is pretty amazing just as a statistic like once they finally successfully launch the SLS at that point you're going to have to wait almost 3 years to do it again <laughs>
that's just wild. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know, man. I just... Yeah. I don't know. Uh, my last bullet point in our show notes about this topic is UG, and that pretty much says it all for me. UG. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Um, so let's let's go from talking about future spacecraft to talking about one that's been in service for a long time, and that is that is Voyager, now 21 billion kilometers from Earth into interstellar space, or close to it, or have already passed it, depending on who and when you ask that question. There has been, uh, we've talked about it too, the end of mission is coming up, and they're looking at ways to prolong that. And one of the the, the big parts of this, right, is keeping the spacecraft oriented so it can communicate with Earth. Right now, commands take 19 and a half hours to reach between Earth and Voyager, but it, that is dependent on it facing the right way. And the the primary thrusters that the team has been using to do that are very quickly running out of fuel, but there are some secondary thrusters on the spacecraft, and for the first time in 37 years, those thrusters were engaged in a little 10 millisecond burst to, to show that they work, that they respond to commands, that they uh, can do what they need to do. And if these four small thrusters behave themselves and can, and can be proven reliable, they may be able to extend the mission by two to three years, basically use all the fuel you have in the main thrusters, move over to the secondary ones, use all their fuel, and you get another 24 or 36 months. But 37 uh, 37 years between firings and it, and they working perfectly is quite the testament to this hardware. Uh, it's amazing and you get that they did it because they're at the you know they're at the end. They've got no reason not to try it because it'll like, let them extend the mission a little bit. Well, ultimately the power is going to run out because they've got their radioisotope power source and it's going to it's going to run out and they're not going to be able to have any more power. But hey, extending a, a 37, you know, year mission <laughs> extending a decades-long mission it's not even 37 years it's 37 years since they last fired extending this three more years it's like yeah just keep keep doing it right they've got nothing to lose and everything to gain the fact that they did this at this level it is it is amazing that is um i saw somebody on twitter say that uh you know they're their their reliability of the simple electronic devices that they have that are new in their house versus something like this which you know was built to last and it has it's amazing yeah it really is so hopefully we get another uh another couple years out out of the spacecraft yeah you want to talk about this uh, apollo documentary yeah just a really quick note um ars technica announced the you know the excellent technology website announced that they're doing um and of course they have a they have a space and science uh group that does some great stuff uh, including Eric Berger, their space writer, about um, about space and science stuff. But they have announced a video initiative. They're going to pivot to video or, you know, the ours version of that. And the first thing they announced was that they're going to do a multi-part documentary series about Apollo. And part one is up now. We'll put a link in the show notes. Part one is called Risk, and it's about risking humans in space and about the Apollo 1 fire. And um, it's, you know, it, it, it's accompanied by a story, but it's also a good, I think it's like 10 minute long video with interviews from people who worked there then and also 
present day astronauts. So uh, definitely worth reading and worth watching. And I think that whole series is going to be worth watching. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I have not watched this yet. It's going it's on my list for this afternoon. Uh but I'm excited to see it's it. It's good. It's not going to tell you anything you didn't know because it right. is a, you know, the Apollo 1 pad fire and all of that. Although there is there is a moment where um there's some audio that I don't think I've heard before that is I can see why they cut it off a little bit because there there's the you know there's the people shouting fire. Um and then there's a little bit more sound after that that I don't think I've heard before and one of the people um, I think, is it Cy Liebergott? It's one who was played by Clint Howard in Apollo 13. Anyway, it's one of the people who was there said, um, you know, they, and they always say like they were they were dead in 20 seconds or something like that. Um, one of them said, um, the audio goes for 16 seconds and I will never stop hearing the screams. And oh, I'd gosh. never heard, I'd never heard that before. And and that, that the point there is that the people who were there and were working on that project are haunted to this day about Apollo 1 and the fire. They they all feel like they let the astronauts down and that, you know, it caused NASA to rethink things. But the other thing that I took away from it, and they, they mentioned this in the video, is the feeling that if that pad fire hadn't happened, they would have absolutely lost astronauts in space. That that mm-hmm. it was in that way, they that that a, a catastrophic event, the way they were going was going to happen. And it just so happens to have have been on the ground but if it hadn't been there they are convinced it would have been, would have happened sometimes somewhere um because they they just they had to change their their culture to continue on with apollo so yeah definitely worth looking at all right let's uh let's take a quick break and let me tell you about our first sponsor and that is squarespace enter offer code liftoff at checkout to get 10 percent off your first purchase Make your next move with Squarespace. They let you easily create a website for your next idea. Maybe you need an online store or you want to create a portfolio or you want to write on a blog. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do just that with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and more. The best part is there's nothing to install. You don't have to go provision a web server and install some software. There's no patches to worry about, no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about that stuff because Squarespace has it covered. And they have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need help. If you have a question or are looking for something, they can help you out. And they let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. Naming stuff is really hard. You can do all that within Squarespace. You don't have to worry about DNS settings. and They just take care of it all for you. And you get to choose from an award-winning template that's beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. We use Squarespace at Relay to power our blog and our retail store. And, you know, online merchandise and selling, that can be really tricky to go find a system and you have to worry about being compliant and credit card processing, processing and all that junk. Squarespace with their retail stuff just takes care of all of it, as you would expect. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com. And when you do decide to sign up, use the offer code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for this show. We thank Squarespace for their support. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Space! Squarespace! Oh, I love it that Squarespace sponsors the LIFTOFF podcast. It's good. Uh, is space a square? I don't think it is. I don't know. Get to the edge and fi- and let me know. I'll text Voyager. I'll let you know in okay. 19 hours. We are continuing our series 
on NASA's Cruise Space Programs. We are a smack dab in the middle of Project Gemini, and we're going to talk about some of the uh, some of the crewed flights from this program. It's true. We're going to start off this week with Gemini 6A and 7. Hmm. They overlapped in December 1965. Gemini 7 launched on December 4th. It spent just shy of 14 days in orbit. It was going to fly after Gemini 6, but plans changed after that mission's uncrewed Agena target vehicle uh, experienced a launch failure. Oops. So 7 came <laughs> before 6 in this case. The the moral of today's story is that the Agena was probably cursed. Like yeah, It's just going to yeah, yeah. be a problem in every mission we talk about today. Orbital rendezvous was a massive milestone for Apollo. NASA had still not achieved it at this point. So after the Agena uh, basically exploded at launch, it was decided that Gemini 6 would be rebadged as 6A and fly and meet Gemini 7 in orbit. The two wouldn't be able to dock, but the idea was that they could at least rendezvous. So we'll get back to that in a second, but let's talk about Gemini 7's other mission objectives first. So two weeks designed to test new equipment and procedures all about long-duration spaceflight. So two weeks, a lot longer than they had had in space. Uh, And so this extended mission time introduced a work and sleep schedule. Again, if you're only up there for a day, just stay awake. Just pull an all-nighter. But Jim Lovell and Frank Borman needed to work and then sleep and then work and then sleep because they were spending two weeks in a tin can together. And as a result of the work part, they carried out more experiments than any other Gemini crew. The pair used uh, new waste management techniques and tested a new lightweight spacesuit, which both men found uncomfortable in the small capsule. And thanks to the advice of previous Gemini astronauts, both men brought books to help pass the time between work sessions. Gemini 6's original mission was going to include 29 orbits and four docking attempts with the uncrewed target vehicle in October 1965. But as I mentioned earlier, it was canceled because the rocket carrying the Agena exploded. That would do it. <laughs> after launch. Can't dock with an exploded target. <laughs> so then the mission was reworked to chase down Gemini 7 and rendezvous in orbit. Gemini 6's bad luck followed the astronauts, Walter Sherrard and Thomas Stafford, into their new December launch window. On December 12th, Gemini 7 had already been in orbit eight days. Uh, their initial launch was scrubbed. The Titan II ignited for one and a half seconds and then shut down. Yoink. Uh, yeah, not, not great. Uh, mm. Shira did not feel the vehicle move under him, so he did not engage the ejection seats. Remember, we talked about this several episodes ago where <laughs> Jim and I had ejection seats. Uh, they probably saved he and his co-pilot from grave injury by not, by not pushing that plunger. Uh, so they stayed atop their Titan II and uh, did not make it to space that day. That's tough. Engineers found that one of the electrical connections to the rocket had fallen out prematurely, oops, and that one of the motors was starved for fuel by a plastic cover that had been left over a vent deep in the rocket. Oops. These issues were resolved. Plug that thing back in, take that cover off, and three days later, Gemini 6A launched on the third. Hey, finally. Hey, here we go. (laughs) Once in orbit, Gemini 6A underwent several burns to catch up with the Gemini 7 capsule. The crew spoke directly with each other over radio, bringing the capsules within a foot of each other. And this, this, when I was reading this and looking at pictures, blows my mind. I mean, they are moving super fast and pull within a foot of each other. 
The spacecraft were so exactly placed in orbit that neither crew had to make any burns for, for times up to 20 minutes. So they, they got it in place hmm. and just flew together. It's called station keeping, uh, and they, they just nailed it. As a sleep period approached on their calendar, 6A pulled back to a distance of 19 miles to avoid any accidents while the crew slept. Oh, that's nice. It's like a little sleepover in space, but not too close. Not too close. There's a nice story here about 6A. Shira and Stafford reported seeing something moving low and fast across their vision. Then they played jingle bells on a harmonica with a selection of handbells <laughs> uh, as well. The Smithsonian claims these were the first musical instruments played in space. You got to find your first somewhere if you're American That's astronauts right. in the Gemini program. And the Smithsonian has the instruments on display. So you can uh, look for the, the harmonica and the bells if you go to the Air and Space Museum, I guess. I wonder if that uh, rogue roast beef sandwich is in the Smithsonian. Pro- probably not. Yeah, they should have freeze dried it. You know, know. Astronauts like that, right? The next day, Gemini 6A touched down in the Atlantic Ocean. A very short mission, go up, rendezvous, come back. Uh, they completed the most accurate re-entry to date by a NASA crew, splashing down just 10 miles off target. Gemini 7, however, still had a handful of days left in orbit. Remember, they're staying up there for two weeks. Uh, Frank Borman later stated the mood aboard deteriorated after the rendezvous. Oh, they were sad when their friends left. <laughs> As on Gemini 5, this capsule started to experience failures of thrusters and the fuel cells, but it splashed down safely just 6.4 miles off target, breaking the record previously set only days earlier by 6A. Man, you feel so good about your about your, your splashdown three Ten days miles, later. miles, they'll never beat it. <laughs> three days later. Yep. Bl- uh, blown out Boom. of the water. Gemini 6A and 7, obviously both historic missions, they would mark the first time NASA supported two active missions at the, sp- at the same time, skills that would prove helpful once the space station programs uh, rolled around years later. So really just massive achievement here, you know, being able to launch two vehicles safely, being able to rendezvous, being able to station keep, pulling them so close together, the astronauts talking directly to each other in orbit and all of that being supported by ground crew. It was a very busy couple of weeks, but definitely a couple of weeks that proved vital moving forward. Yeah, you you look at this and you think um, multitasking is harder than unitasking. The the You set up a mission control just to talk to the one mission, and then you get a second mission. It's like, well, how do we do that? Like, the data needs to be relayed separately. Different people need to be looking at different data. And you, that that's a a big task but if you look out and i'm not quite sure where this fits in the timeline but i think they knew at this point the idea that apollo was going to involve um, a rendezvous once they decided to do the lunar rendezvous especially um that they would need to be able to talk to two different sets of crews anyway right because they would need to talk to the uh or and see data from the lem and see it from the orbiter and even if that was being relayed by the orbiter, I'm not quite sure about that. So, um, so it's right there, right? Like this is um, this is something they needed to be able to do is multitask. And uh, so, six A and seven are the ones that made it happen. Cool. Uh, so let's get a Gemini eight. But first, do you want to tell us about our second sponsor? Sure. Our other sponsor this week is Eero. Never think about Wi-Fi again. Eero is a company that's created a dream Wi-Fi setup. It's a fast 
reliable connection throughout your house, even out into the backyard or into the front yard. I've got an Eero set up in my house that extends so my smart lights that are in the front of my house don't uh, lose connection with my Wi-Fi network like they used to do because I've covered that front part of the house, which is very nice. And now is a great time to get on board with Eero. They just released their new super slick second generation devices. They've got a tri-band second-generation model along with Eero Beacon, which is this cute little guy that lets you build a Wi-Fi system perfectly tailored to your home. There's a third giga, uh, 5 gigahertz radio in the second-generation Eero, so it's twice as fast as before. So you can do more than ever. It sits flat on any service, surface. You just plug it into the wall with the power adapter, connect either wirelessly or with Ethernet. Uh, there's also a new thread radio, which is going to connect to uh, a bunch of Internet of Things devices. And the Eero Beacon, it's small. You plug it into the wall, and it will pick up the rest of your Eero network and expand coverage into your room. You can add as many of them as you want, as long as you have an Eero base station somewhere. It's got a built-in LED night light with ambient night sens- light sensor, so it will cover up uh, one plug on your wall, but it gets to be a nightlight, so you don't need the nightlight anymore. And you can turn that off if you don't like that. The Eero app lets you manage your entire network from the palm of your hand. You can easily create and share a guest network, too. There's great customer support. You can get hold of a Wi-Fi expert in just 30 seconds. The new Eero system starts at $399. That will get you one second-generation Eero and two beacons. That's everything you need to get started. And listeners of this show can get free overnight shipping to the U.S. or Canada when you head to Eero.com. That's E-E-R-O.com and use the promo code LIFTOFF. That's E-E-R-O.com, promo code LIFTOFF for free overnight shipping. Thank you to Eero for supporting LIFTOFF. All right, Jim and I, Jim and I ate David Scott and Neil Armstrong. Hey. Yeah. It's that guy. That guy. Took off in March of 1966 for a three-day mission that included our old friend, the Agena Target Vehicle. This time, it did not explode. So good. That's good. It uh, was boosted into orbit perfectly, and Jim and I ate, caught up with it after a couple of burns. Now, speaking of firsts, here we go. Neil Armstrong, no, soon to be experiencing other firsts, by the way, made the first successful in-orbit docking maneuver. He connected with the 26-foot-long Agena on his first attempt. After the docking was confirmed, the Agena's automated system was supposed to turn the now-combined spacecraft 90 degrees. The crew realized the spacecraft was actually yawing to the right, corrected it using Gemini's thrusters. This was during a period of radio blackout with the ground, but Armstrong noticed the propellant for his capsule's thrusters had already dropped 30%. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. The spacecraft was still yawing, and the crew became concerned as the spin rate uh, increased. They were worried that it would damage the spacecraft, potentially causing the Agena's large fuel tanks to explode. So they got it under control enough to undock. Uh, the thought was that if the problem was with the Agena, the Gemini spinning would have slowed down, but instead it increased. The problem was not with the large uncrewed Agena, but with the Gemini capsule itself which was now tumbling end over end through space yeah this is depicted i believe in from the earth to the moon which again is great and you should get the dvds and i hope it comes on streaming at some point because it's so great and this this experience is depicted in there it's very dramatic because it was a little scary and they were out of touch um and so without the mass of agena to slow it down once it undocked the revolutions of the gemini capsule kept increasing they nearing one per second 
This means the astronaut's vision became blurred. They risked vertigo and potentially even blacking out. Neil Armstrong disabled the in-orbit thrusters and used the re-entry control system to slowly bring the capsule back under control. And you know what? This is why you hire test pilots to be your astronauts. Yeah, no kidding. This is a, a scary situation. I mean, it, it could have been that if Armstrong took another minute or minute and a half to come up with this plan, or if this plan didn't work, that uh, we would have had a very different section of this episode of Liftoff. Yeah, yeah, they could have, they could have lost the crew potentially, um, and all while you know being out of touch on the radio, and uh, it's scary. But Armstrong got it under control because um, he's the cool-headed uh, test pilot. Yeah. It took almost 75% of the re-entry maneuvering fuel to stop the tumble. Uh, Emission rules dictated that the flight be aborted once the re-entry control system was fired for any reason. So Gemini 8 prepared for an emergency return and splashed down just one orbit later. Investigations into what went wrong started as soon as the capsule had returned. Of course, ground controllers tested the Agena stage for the next several days by ordering it to perform various in-orbit maneuvers until it used all of that fuel in its fuel tank and its electrical power, and they found no problems with the Agena. Well, it behaved itself for once. Yeah, as long as people aren't around, it's fine. (laughs) Yeah. Whatever. There was no conclusive reason found for the thruster malfunction on the Gemini capsule itself. The most probable cause, it was determined that it was some sort of electrical short, because power flowed to the thruster even when it was off. And so the thought was if there was a short there somewhere, it was you know getting signal to fire. To prevent recurrence of this problem, spacecraft designs were changed for the, the remaining Gemini capsule. So each thruster would have an isolated circuit to, to help keep this from happening again. So this whole Agena and Gemini 8 ordeal led to the formation of new investigative procedures within NASA. How do you investigate a technical problem? That allowed uh, leadership to run independent inquiries across various programs and teams. And it was very useful that this procedure was put in place because they would need to engage it for Apollo 1 and Apollo 13. Uh, Unfortunately, Gemini 8 uh, is not the the roughest story in Project Gemini. On February 28, 1966, astronauts Elliot C. Jr. and Charles Bassett II were killed in their T-38 Talon jet at Lambert Field in St. Louis, Missouri. The two were en route to inspect their capsule with their backup crew, Thomas Stafford and Eugene Cernan, flying in their own jet with them. The weather in St. Louis that day was cold and rainy with a dense fog having settled in over the airfield. After overshooting the runway, Elliot C. completed a full low circle of the airfield, flying visually despite the weather, while Stafford followed the more standard approach of climbing back into the clouds to land by instrumentation. C. came in too fast and too low, and as he fired his afterburner in an attempt to recover, slammed into McDonnell Building 101 on the northeast Mm. side of the airport. The plane broke apart on impact, killing both men before the wreckage came to a stop in a parking lot. Building 101 housed the crew's Gemini spacecraft, which wasn't damaged, uh, but 10 people on the ground did sustain injuries. Stafford and Cernan remained airborne and were not informed of the crash until they landed. Uh, Stafford actually kind of took over the initial in- investigation as the the next-in-command NASA on site, uh, but investigators eventually ruled the accident as pilot error. So uh, at the astronaut memorial... Um C and Bassett are listed in the astronaut memorial in uh, at Kennedy Space Center. 
even though they uh, it was not they weren't in a capsule or something like that, but they were they were uh, going to fly and they were going on NASA business to go see the capsule. So they're definitely covered. Um, and how about it? Them them. I mean, they hit the building that their capsule was in. That's unbelievable. Um, so with all of that terrible stuff happening, Stafford and Cernan ended up as the primary crew for the renamed Gemini 9A. They took off in their capsule on June 3rd, 1966. So just a few months later, completed 47 orbits in three days. Um, their initial objective was to dock with the Agena. Hey, old buddy, you're back. And it had to be scrapped because the Atlas rocket failed to place the Agena in the proper orbit. Uh, come on, come on, guys. Get it together, Agena. Uh, the next Agena would not be available until summer, but NASA had a backup rendezvous target available called an Augmented Target Docking Adapter. Catchy. The ATDA. The ATDA seemed to have the same genetics as the Agena. No! It was placed in orbit without a problem, but it had a shroud protecting it during liftoff, uh, which failed to jettison. So by the time Gemini 9A shows up, it this this shroud is like half hanging off the ATDA in space. Uh, Stafford said it looked like an angry alligator because this thing is like V-shaped. It looks like alligator jaws hanging off the uh, the end of it, they uh, Stafford and Cernan volunteered. Hey, what if we just go nudge it with the end of our capsule? The ground the ground crew said no. That's a terrible idea. So instead of docking, Cernan practiced rendezvous by sight. That's a good idea. Um, there's a I'll put a link in the show notes to the angry alligator. People can check that out. Uh, Gene Cernan was assigned an EVA on this flight for testing a new backpack maneuvering unit, complete with its own propulsion, oxygen, and biometric system. He had to climb out of the hatch, move his hand, uh, hands over one over the other, down the spacecraft to the storage area behind the spacecraft. This is when when things get rough. Ugh. He struggled to move in his pressurized suit, uh, and as he was hooking up the backpack, his heart rate was clocked at 155 beats per minute. As he sweated, his visor began to fog. The work was made even more difficult by the lack of proper hand and footholds on the outside of the spacecraft. So if you look at pictures of the International Space Station, there's handles everywhere because they, they know they need maybe need to do an EVA to reach a remote point. But the Gemini didn't have those. He got uh, everything hooked up before Stafford um, called off the testing for certain safety. Uh, Cernan made it back to the the hatch, but struggled to get in the capsule between being in the pressurized suit. is difficult to bend. He was completely blind in his helmet as the suit's cooling system had overheated. Uh, they finally got him back uh, inside the capsule, and later that day, Gemini 9A splashed down with both men safely in the capsule. Now, that was it for the astronaut maneuvering unit for the moment it mm -hmm. wasn't needed in in the apollo missions and in fact they didn't test this sort of self-contained spacesuit in space again until 1984 when a modified version of the amu called the manned maneuvering unit mmu was flown by astronaut bruce mccandless on a space shuttle mission and if you've seen those you've probably seen those pictures 
of the space shuttle MMU where you're kind of free, they're free floating and they tested it and he kind of went away from the shuttle and then came back to the shuttle. But basically this concept got shelled for almost 20 years. Yeah, it was proven not necessary for Apollo. And so they, you know, they, I think after the, the Cernan incident, like there, there was, I think there was a real moment there where there was concern that he was not going to be able to make it back inside. And that uh, obviously would be very bad. Right. right. So. And the Apollo spacesuits had priority, right? They knew that they were going to get people out on the surface of the moon, but they didn't need to maneuver. They just needed to have um, self-regulated breathing and, you know, temperature control. And so my guess is they focused on that and then just set this to the side. They didn't need to do it. It's like, I'd like to know who built this and how they feel about the fact that they got their space jetpack all the way to this point and did one test. And then they basically, NASA said, we'll call you in the 80s. Yeah. Well, that is Gemini 6, 7, 8, and 9. If you want to uh, read more about them or the stories we talked about at the top of the show, you can find links on our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 61. You can get in touch with us there on the site. You can send us an email. You can find us on Twitter, of course. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. Jason is J Snell with two L's. And you can find me there as ISMH. Until our next Fortnite, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.